0: This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest is Dr. John Waller, Chief Operations Officer and Founder of Oracle Bio. John has spent over 15 years as a project leader for various uh, companies in the pharmaceutical industry, including AstraZeneca and Merck. He has expertise in the integration of translational biomarkers into drug discovery programs and considerable experience in developing in vitro, ex vivo, and in vivo models involving image analysis across numerous therapeutic areas. Oracle Bio is a global leader in quantitative digital pathology, providing image analysis services to pharma and biotech clients worldwide, leveraging multiple software platforms. Their mission is to enhance decision making within R&D by leveraging digital pathology to develop robust data with actionable insights. We're going to be talking about the role of digital pathology in drug development and drug discovery. What is machine learning and deep learning? How is this different from artificial intelligence? And what role do they play in image analysis and digital pathology? how is multiplexing evolving and is how is it going to change what we do and what is the need for cloud computing in digital pathology what are the advantages and disadvantages of putting our data and processes in the cloud John Waller from Oracle Bio welcome to the podcast thanks very much for having me very exciting times in in digital pathology and there's so many subdomains in digital pathology so tell us A little bit about the history of Oracle Bio, what you do there, what your overall mission is. Let's start with the mission.
1: Our mission as a company really is to generate the best possible data from R&D studies that involve histopathology readouts to aid better decision making for pharmaceutical and biotech companies. The way we do that is to use quantitative digital pathology techniques and that helps us to provide really accurate and precise quantitative data. And the way we do that is as a a, a contract research organization, we're a a fee-for-service company, a CRO. We take in images from from our clients, histopathology images. Uh, We use image analysis software. We develop algorithms on that software um, to analyze the samples, uh, the images, and to generate data and then provide that back to the client. And all that's done under some uh, pathologist oversight. So hence the fee-for-service component. The company... Itself, It was founded by myself and uh, Dr. Lorcan Sherry. We're, we're both ex-pharma R&D people. Lorcan ran the histopathology lab, uh, one of the Merck and Co sites in Scotland, and, and I was a bi- biology project leader at the same time there. We, we both had experience in image analysis. Importantly as well, we also both had an interest in biomarkers and we saw an opportunity really to establish a company that's solely focused on image analysis services. And, and that's the start of it, really. We, we established the company 10 years ago. I have to say it's fairly humble beginnings. It was two guys and one laptop. Uh, and then we've bootstrapped the company from there without any external investment um, at, that, at that time or, or since. We've built up a team of uh, about 23 very sort of talented people. We've got world class image analysis people and also clinical pathologists on the team as well. We now uh, deploy the Indica Labs Halo system and also the VisioFarm software capabilities within the company. And we've gone from that having one laptop to net moving to server based um, computing. We're now moving into cloud based computing with sort of scaling capabilities. So, um, quite a sort of heavy infrastructure to be able to support all this, uh, and then and, and then recently we've established uh, some good clinical practice services as well, GCP services.
0: I'd love to dive into that, but it sounds like you were a bit of a visionary. You said you were interested in biomarkers, and I kind of alluded to there's a lot of subdomains and areas of specialization in digital pathology. I think all the way from preclinical work, drug development, and discovery pharma, and then you know going all the way to clinical practice. The big story of the late 90s and early 2000s was biomarkers, and so on. So did you see something at that point to say that well, really the future is going to be more in image analysis and computation? Pathology?
1: I think it was, to be honest, one probably one component of a whole slew of biomarker approaches that we were coming across in the pharma, sort of translational biomarkers. And it starts target identification or target identification, target engagement biomarkers, target modulation biomarkers. And, and we were having to deploy a whole different series of techniques for the different types of biomarkers we were looking at. For example, does the drug bind to the target? If it does bind to the target, how much does it bind, and does it? When it does bind, what does it do? What's the sort of effective results? Looking at sort of measuring proteins and, and biomarkers with image analysis was one part of that whole process. And when, in truth, when Lorcan and I set out, we we were looking at it as a holistically thinking. Well, which which of these biomarker approaches would be best one to to and the, with the most impact for our clients and uh, and, and for patients. It just so happened that we, we we focused in on image analysis because it was it was a growing field at that point. And also in, in truth, Joe, it is probably one of the easiest things for us to get involved with. We we really needed at that stage just just a laptop and some software and we could be off and running as I say, we didn't have any funding, so we had to start to start slowly and small, whereas, you know, we didn't need to buy, for example, a mass spec system to measure drug amounts or something like that. So it was a bit of judgment and also a bit of judgment and an easy access for a, a CRO for us at that point, but also a vision thing. Well, actually, the measuring some biomarkers in tissues is clearly going to be a thing of the future. And um, so, yeah, I think we were out there on their own initially as an image analysis provider. There weren't a lot of purely image analysis providers at that time.
0: You know, maybe explain to our listeners maybe a little bit about how preclinical space and drug development works. Us pathologists signing out cases in clinical practice, it's a little more close-ended, we're looking at a smaller subset of biomarkers that's been validated and and so on. But like in discovery and preclinical work, it seems a little more open-ended. So how do you really approach that? Is it more, because um, I know you guys have to be practical, or is it driven by uh, your clients and what they want? Or is it a, a partnership? How does that really work? It's mostly driven by our,
1: our clients and what they need in terms of what they want to analyze. You'd be surprised at, say, the number of drug programs that don't necessarily fill in all the basic gaps before they proceed further down the line. For example, just checking that the target of interest is expressed in the tissue um, it, it would seem like an obvious thing to do. Uh, and you might say, for example, carry out that assessment in some preclinical samples um, in, in rodent tissue, but not necessarily have the access or, or think to actually test to see whether or not that target is expressed in human tissue. and test to see whether it's in normal tissue or diseased tissue. It's those basic things that are generally, uh, how we generally cover it. But in terms of what we analyze, we're fairly agnostic to what, what comes to us for analysis. Uh, you know, most clients have their their projects that they're working on. They want to analyze a, a certain target and check that it's
0: expressed or the amounts of expression uh, pre and post drug. So you mentioned good, good clinical practice. Uh, so maybe tell us what that means. Is this a new thing? Is it kind of a standard uh, for the industry and how did you go about implementing a Good Clinical Practice program?
1: Yeah, Good Clinical Practice, yeah, GCP. It's a, it's a process that's designed really to deliver quantitative data suitable for inclusion in data packages for regulatory submission. So it has to be delivered in a certain way to allow it to be put forward for the regulatory submission. And the way to do that is it's, it abides by internationally recognized set of ethical and scientific principles and guidelines So essentially we're working to a quality standard. Really that framework and that quality standard helps to provide confidence in the clinical trial data that you're generating. So it's quite regulated, as you imagine, a lot of documents involved in it. And it was quite an undertaking for a company like us in amongst everything else we had to do, we had to validate, um, all our GCP dedicated software and validate our servers and our IT in in accordance with the various guidelines. We had to put in place things like business continuity in the event of an accident happening, say, for example. So if there were a disaster, make sure that we have disaster recovery and backup procedures in place. I have to say, it, it was quite an undertaking. Um, it's had far-reaching implications right across the company. It certainly helped us to develop our internal policies and procedures. So I'd say it's been really good for Oracle Bio. It's it certainly made us stronger as a company on the back of this work, uh, right across the board from SOPs, policies training manuals and the rest of it. So we're, we're pleased to have all the hard work is now showing um, come through to fruition and we've carried out our first GCP study, which has gone well. So we're happy.
0: You know, you said the the V word validation, which I think is can be daunting in this space. And so, and it also sounds like it's a very IT uh, intensive process for our listeners. Uh, could you draw a comparison? Let's say you were doing a study uh, looking at molecular markers versus uh, digital pathology or MS image analysis is this, you know, in terms of the IT infrastructure required? Is uh, you know digital pathology and image analysis much more data intensive, requiring larger infrastructure and so forth?
1: It's more about, I'd say, more about the security um, aspects of it. So it's about validating a system to say, well, um, can we ensure that nobody can access this data that they shouldn't be accessing it? So all the sort of uh, permission settings are correct. So saying, well. The whole restriction of, of access to it and also making sure that nobody can go in and modify data after the event or delete data and it's all secure and backed up. So it's it's about that sort of reassurance prospect. It's about that, that whole quality management piece. Um, in terms of additional computational side of things, it's not, not really any different in that sense. It's more about how you approach it and the set of procedures you put in place to give you confidence that nobody's sort of uh, can can manipulate the data in any way once it's been
0: generated. Ensuring the integrity of that data. Now, let's talk spe- specifically about what you do. Digital pathology has evolved over the last 20 years or so. So maybe from your perspective, you know, I remember back when I was first starting off, we had little cameras on top of our microscopes and would take static images. You know, so we've kind of evolved from the field of view, camera images all the way to whole slide imaging, and then, what you folks are doing, developing tools or utilizing tools uh, for multiplexing and computational pathology. So, have you seen that that evolve?
1: Yeah, we we've seen that definitely evolve. I, I I think it's it's helped definitely in you know through the evolution has helped in generating better quality data. There's no doubt about that. If if I recall back to our first study, just just as you said, Joe, it, we had a we had a camera mounted on a microscope and we were taking field of view images and and at, at the time uh, we were taking. You know making gross area measurements on those samples and from memory fairly rudimentary cell counts and 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 the the resolution wasn't particularly good and um it was definitely potentially open for bias as well in terms of selecting a particular field of view to do the analysis on if you if you didn't select the right field of view you might get some sort of bias in the data so we were we were really happy when the advent of digital scanners came in and that ability to do a whole slide scan of a whole image so that you can analyze right across a sample, which is much better. The resolution as well was much better from, the, from a digital scanner than it was from a camera. And it allowed us to sort of zoom into that sort of times 20 times 40 magnification and right across the tissue, analyze hundreds of thousands of different cells, which is, gives you a, a, a sort of much more sort of confidence that you're generating really high quality data. And then from that we've we've seen that sort of, as you mentioned, that movement into the multiplex field, which uh, is sort of a big thing for us at the moment. We you know the multiplex can either be um, colorimetric in na- in nature or or fluorescent. So we do we do a lot more fluorescent multiplex because it allows you to put different layers onto an image to to pick out various biomarkers, and it's really good in terms of being able to allow co-localization of biomarkers on cells and um, and also looking at things like, for example, different cellular phenotypes. So, for example, detecting cytotoxic and uh, and, and T helper cells. And um, so that's really good from a, a multiplex perspective. And also the spatial analysis comes in there as well. When you're looking at, say, um, a tumor microenvironment, being able to say, is a particular cell type interacting with another cell type. That all comes into play with this multiplex that brings all that in. And so naturally, it, it, it plays really well to things like immuno-oncology and immunology. And, I, and I'd say it's, it's relatively easy to analyse three or four markers with multiplex and fluorescence, but we're sort of pushing the envelope as much as we can. We're multiplexing now up to 12 biomarkers on a slide um, using technology like the UltraView staining technologies. That's really really great to be able to do that, but it's, it's i won't I won't lie the image analysis component of that is very it's increasingly difficult when you've got those different channels that you're measuring and looking at cells with multiple parameters on them that were biomarkers that we're measuring and also it also poses a computational challenge as well. The length of time to process is um, is is a long time and, that, and that's a that's a advice for anybody sort of going into this area that you need the computer power to be able to do this properly.
0: Absolutely. I think the, the multiplexing, it, it looks so pretty. You generate these pretty pictures on the screen and you can realize the promise there, right? It opens up a whole new world of being able to co-localize things, visualize things you couldn't see before, make all kinds of computations. But then as you alluded to, it it probably becomes increasingly complicated, right? You think, well, I'm gonna multiplex a hundred different markers, not not so fast. I mean, I, I think it technical challenges and your computational challenges and your statistical analysis challenges probably grow exponentially as you add more markers. So maybe it's probably more I'm guessing it's more difficult than it looks like. And then you said computational pathologies. I think it's interesting how this has evolved. So going back to uh the fixed view camera progressing to whole slide imaging to multiplexing, we wanna extract data there and there's Obviously, various ways of doing so. One of which would be a human being. crudest way would be drawing, you know, magic marker lines on the slide and measuring. You know, then you add tools you can use with your mouse and keyboard, just the tools to quantitate something or to measure something. Then you can move into scripts or algorithms or having uh, having this done in a very automated way. Computational pathology, uh, really, is kind of what we're driving at. Take measurements, and we want to perform calculations and statistical analysis and derive something meaningful. At the heart of it, what is computational pathology?
1: At its most basic level, it's, it's essentially using computers and image analysis to to aid pathologists, really. I think traditionally, a pathologist like yourself, Joe, would sit at a microscope, look down at a, a slide, and um, I think the human eye, human brain, are particularly good at, at that, that whole qualitative piece where, where you can instantly... Uh, looking at a slide, know it's a liver sample, and you'll know which bit's got tumour in it and which bit's normal tissue, and and that's where the human human brain is, is particularly good. I think where humans struggle a little bit uh, more is is in the actual quantification side of things, where you especially when you're trying to quantify cells on on a or staining area on a on a large scale, and I, th- I think that's where computing and image analysis comes in. So using specifically designed software to do this you can get you know it plays really well to that quantitative component where you say measuring 200,000 cells on a on a tissue and you want to measure the different types of t-cells in a tissue you know that's you know it's simply impossibly difficult for a human to do that on the flip side with the computing whereas a human can under a trained pathologist can see some cancer immediately computing needs to be trained so you need to sort of train the algorithms over a period of time to say this is tumor. This is stroma. These are particular cells that you're interested in. Yeah, there's a bit of a yin and a yang between the two, I'd say. But the way we like to play it is to say it's pathologist-led image analysis. So, you know, it's not one or the other. It's a combination where I think that is a sweet
0: spot. Pathologist-led image analysis. I like that. I think ultimately when you start to take the human being out of the equation, right? I mean, you need the pathologist, obviously, to train these algorithms or show the machine, what is tumor, what's not tumor at the most basic level, and then moving towards more and more nuanced features. We keep hearing about artificial intelligence. And you talked about training. And then that leads to that calls to mind the term learning. And we hear about machine learning and deep learning. Could you give us an overview, or at least in your perspective, what are we talking about? What is machine learning? And is that different than deep learning? And are those subsets of artificial intelligence? What do these terms mean? A number of terms get thrown around these days, and especially in the press, and
1: uh, so it's it's a bit of a mixed bag. But I'd say that there are really three commonly used terms: there's artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning. And artificial intelligence is the big picture thing. That's a f- where you use effectively use machines to to think and act like humans. We're essentially mimicking human behaviour. Machine learning is actually a subset of artificial intelligence that enables computers to perform tasks without explicit programming. So an, an example for those in digital pathology in, in image analysis is is the use of random forest techniques, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners will have come across. And, and that's used widely and routinely in image analysis software and has been for quite a while. Now, deep learning is something different. That's a subset, again, from within machine learning. And that's based on uh, using neural networks that, they effectively permit a machine to train itself to perform a task. It's, I suppose it's inspired by the way that a human brain filters information. Definitely deep learning algorithms are the way of the future, helping to deal with more complex problems. So it's it's deep learning within machine learning, within artificial intelligence. And um, yeah, deep learning is where all the driverless cars come in with deep learning, the ability to train itself and learn from its mistakes.
0: We're all excited at the promise of being able to do so much more with these tools, but then I think it also gets so much more complicated, maybe even particularly from a regulatory perspective. So let's say you're, how does this fit into a good clinical practice? Or maybe it's somewhere down the road where how do you go about regulating a machine that trains itself? I mean, let's say if we had this in your lab versus somewhere else, would you come up with different outcomes and different results uh, based on a similar data set? I mean, how, how do you go about... Uh, a regulatory approach to, to deep learning.
1: The journey to the endpoint can be different. In, um, but once, in terms of uh, two different labs with the same images and deep learning approaches might get to that, to a point, to the same point via different routes. But once the algorithm has got to a position where it's performing well and and um, it's doing what we need it to do, you can effectively lock that algorithm at that point and say, okay, this is, a, this is an algorithm that's it's been trained, um, and fire uh, a number of different iterations. And you'll say, okay, we'll save that as an algorithm that's ready to roll. And then you can lock that and validate that algorithm to make sure that it works on the samples that you're interested in and then apply it objectively to the samples. So the, the training itself can be, you, know, you can see what I mean by the journey. The training itself can be slightly different, but when you get there, you can lock it and use it in GCP studies. So that's not necessarily a, a big issue.
0: We're on the right track people, scientists, and regulators are becoming comfortable with this type of technology.
1: I think so, yeah. Increasingly so as well. It becomes more more commonly used. Yeah, I think so.
0: And in this approach, we certainly generate very large amounts of data, right? In the days of being able to do this on your own computer, your own desktop, or even maybe your own internal uh, server are becoming limited. So we need more storage capability. We need servers. We need cloud computing to handle all this data. Let's talk first about the need for larger and more encompassing approach to handle all of our data on servers and then maybe talk about how these functions these computing functions can occur in the cloud
1: you know if we start with what do we do on servers as a sort of basic sort of question well the headline here is servers have really helped to provide data faster by providing more computing the question might be for some of you listeners, you know what is a server i'm a biologist by training so you know i didn't know what a server was until we started using it but the way I I look at it is, say, a standard laptop on your desk has computing power. There might be one CPU in that in that laptop, so one central processing unit. Whereas a server has multiple CPUs in it. So, for example, a standard server might have say 24 CPUs. So you have effectively got 24 laptops with the power within one block. And if you if you if those CPUs have something called hyper-threading, that can double the performance by allowing parallel processing to go on. So Basically, it's a it's a series of high-end computing put together, but the server will generally also have things like blocks of storage in there to store the images that we need. It'll have various other components, say switches and such like, to allow the data to be transferred between one server and another. And the, one of the most important things here is also the fans as well, to keep the whole thing cool, because these things can get quite warm for obvious reasons. So if, if you envisage servers, you envisage a sort of data center where they're all stacked up in, in, in cabinets, with uh, various air-conditioned rooms. Uh, that's that's what we're talking about there. But, but what's interesting, though, and it's something that is not commonly known, is that uh, traditional servers usually um, are quite CPU intensive, which is great for things like machine learning. So if you're doing some random forest analysis, you'll use CPUs. As things evolve and we see more deep learning, servers actually need to be equipped with a GPU, uh, which is a graphical processing unit. And, gpus might be familiar to some people because they're they're used by both gamers and uh and deep learning scientists and they're used for providing great graphics for gamers but they're also used by the scientists to provide a lot of parallel processing that you don't get with a CPU and it, what's interesting is GPU servers they're not so readily available uh, and they also tend to be uh, a little bit more expensive as well so it's a sort of it's a consideration for any deep learning work that it needs it needs that type of thing you sort of mentioning, joe about the pros and cons of, of cloud computing that uh,
0: as technology evolves, I think there's always these parallels, They're very image intensive applications and gaming always seems to, to come up. And certainly what we do in, you know, in pathology is very visual and those visual files tend to be very large. Yeah. So let's, so what about cloud computing? How is that different than, you know, the servers that are in a closet? Um, I guess all, even when it's on the cloud, servers reside somewhere, physical servers, but how does, how does that process work? So what can you do in the cloud? What are the advantages of that?
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely, I'd say there's definitely more pros uh, to, to cloud computing than there are cons. I, you're absolutely right. It's a server, whether it's in the cloud or not, There's a sort of mythical aspect to, ser- to cloud computing, but it's, it's not. It's just a server somewhere else. But some of the pros of it from, from a cloud computing perspective are the scalability, uh, the flexibility, and probably the investment costs are really uh, quite key. The scalability is fundamental, I think. It's in the cloud, in things like Amazon Web Services or or, or similar products like that. You, you've got almost infinite scalability and you've got servers that you can pull up on demand. Just to give you an example, this week we were running 430 servers to process some samples that we were doing in parallel. That allowed us to, to process some data within about 20 hours, I think it was whereas ordinarily on a smaller server it would have taken weeks. And the beauty about the cloud as well is that we can terminate those servers when we don't need them, so we can shut them down and they're finished and effectively throw them away, which is a great thing. The other thing, I guess, is the flexibility that we've found with with the cloud computing. It's the types, you know, you can change the type of server you need. So I've talked about CPU servers and GPU servers, and, and you, can, you can flick between the two should you need it, and you can modify the amount of CPU on a particular ser- server, you can modify the storage, modify the bandwidth, all these sort of things that um, you, when you come across a, a bottleneck or a throttling on something, you can change it, which is really good. And I guess the key thing is that the investment cost, there's, n- there's no physical investment in, in capex for the hard physical hardware. So you're essentially leasing the hardware, but that means you're always getting up to date um, up-to-date hardware, which is good. Don't get me wrong, Joe, there are some cons as well. I think the the running costs can creep up if you're not careful, so you need to manage that pretty carefully. Also, for some people, not knowing exactly which hard drive your data is allocated on can be a bit of an issue. Probably more these days, more and more of perception rather than a reality. I think more and more companies are using AWS for GCP work and, and also regulatory work. And I think it's highly adopted by across the board. You know, banking, healthcare, government are using these type of things. It isn't just our theory. We're practitioners of this. We do it day in, day out, which has led to some of our clients asking us to deploy and manage their own cloud infrastructure for them. And I think the reason we can do that is it's our sort of secret source, really. We, We know how sort of knowledge of the image analysis software and how that integrates with an AWS platform to be able to, there's the combination of those two together and knowing how they work together, which is really important in terms of getting the most
0: out of the software that you've got on some projects you're running over 400 servers i mean and you're talking about decreasing the time for analysis from a matter of months to maybe days or hours and it also really highlights the fact that much of this is very automated the computations involved are very extensive you're handling a lot of data in a field that used to be pretty manual so this is almost a quantum leap so maybe just tell us briefly how You know, has automation evolved in digital pathology? You know, how does it work? And just at a very rudimentary level, you're writing algorithms and scripts. So, you know, what are scripts? How do you go about creating that?
1: What we're aiming for here is an increase in the speed and sort of to improve the analysis. So yeah, we we definitely use scripting. Basically, it's another way of, of, of saying writing computer programming. We use it to allow extra functionality. Within Oracle Bio, we use scripting in two different ways. We use it to help with our cloud computing infrastructure. And also we use it, specifically for the image analysis software as well. So if I take those two examples, and from the cloud computing perspective, let's say, for example, our scientists have a a processing job to do. They have 100 images to process. We've set up um, scripting in the background, which when we press go, it picks up those um, jobs from the image analysis software, and it pushes them out to AWS. And it fires up those servers that we need to process the jobs, deploying, say, one image to every server, the scripting then shuts those servers down when they're, f- when they're finished. And we're really heavily innovating in this area to try and improve that whole automation front and on the uh, on the cloud computing front. I also mentioned the other component where we're using scripting on from an image analysis software perspective as part of the image analysis workflow. And there are various sort of softwares out there, like say, for example, Python or R. And you can use these to, to do some sort of fancy extra analysis on the samples that you're working on so you could use it say for example pixel level intensity analysis or some post processing steps or um, and we've actually written a, a script which is really good for some something something quite simple but very useful It's a checksum script so it checks the data integrity when you're moving it from place a to place b if you're moving it to clients to check the data's intact so yeah there's a whole sort of scripting thing going on there and in, and in terms of you can also use it. You know, for, you mentioned the artificial intelligence thing. Well, we can using the uh, the getting into the back end of software through their uh, API, application programming interface, as they call that. You can use that to to say deploy, say for example, a deep learning algorithm that's been developed elsewhere. You can sort of plug that into the into the software using their API. So. There's a whole reason for and whole sort of opportunities for using scripting in this. And I think we're, we're as Oracle Bio, we're really keen to see this automation. It's not to replace people, but it's just to improve the processes. One of the things we're really keen on is, is the ability to, when some images arrive in a folder, is to ingest those images automatically into some software, apply some automatic QC steps um, using, for example, an AI app. That will then say, pick out images that are, say, have been scanned that are out of focus, or they've got folds in them, or something like that. So it automatically separates out those images based on the QC. And then the data is available for the scientists in the morning when they arrive. Rather than them having to do that, the whole automation thing would just pick up the images, QC them, deliver the data, and then in the morning you'll say, well, here's a list of things that have failed and those that have passed. And you can then get on with what you need to be doing in terms of analyzing it. Definitely got that in our sights as a company, and I think that's the way forward.
0: Definitely not looking to replace people, but I think we can go a long way to enhancing the performance of people and making their jobs easier and allow them to perform at an even higher level. Well, so John Waller from Oracle Bio, thank you so much for being with us. Before we wrap up, maybe on a personal level, tell us a little bit about your background and how'd you get started in digital pathology?
1: I did a PhD in cardiovascular science um, at Nottingham University, and um, and then I I, I took a job in uh, the pharmaceutical industry, and I I worked for a number of different pharma companies, and I was a project biologist, and I I was involved in optimising various new drug candidates, and through that, there was an increasing focus on translational biomarkers Um, I was very interested in. We were looking at this whole target occupancy, target engagement thing. In the late 90s, um, I trained on some image analysis software. We, I actually was involved in purchasing the system for the AstraZeneca site at, at the Charnwood site, where we had a, a system, an early system for image analysis. And really, since then, it's that's maintained my interest in in in, uh, in image analysis and digital pathology since since those days.
0: Okay, yeah, I think we, it's uh, it's been a long journey, and I think those of us who have who have been in from the early days, I think, are really excited about how far we've come and how how much uh, further we can go. So tell us, what excites you? How do you see things evolving in the next 10 years or so?
1: I'm heavily involved in the IT side of things, as you can probably tell. And I just love problem solving from IT issues to relating to digital pathology. My job as a chief operating officer at Oracle Bios is to ensure the company functions well, including the IT side of things. So I'm a biologist by trade but but i'm lucky to have some support from some really talented i.t people and like to work on things that you know how can we make the software run quicker how can we improve our systems you know testing various options in terms of you know looking for improvements i, I guess it's probably the closest i get to experiments these days <laughs> but i i really enjoy that problem- solving component and uh, it's all about looking for new ways to say improve the, the quality and the speed in which we can return the data to our,
0: our clients and ultimately to improve patients' lives. Looking for new ways to improve patients' lives. Well, our guest has been John Waller from Oracle Bio. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.